But it was one of those things where like, I would never have had the guts to do that <laughs> and email or call someone out of the blue had I not been in this position where I had just been laid off and like really felt like I had nothing to lose. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learned from them. I'm your host, Ozan Morol. This week's guest is Jessica Bennett. Jessica is an award-winning journalist and author who covers social issues and culture through a gender lens. She was recently appointed the first ever gender editor of the New York Times. She is the best-selling author of The Feminist Fight Club, a survival manual for a sexist workplace, which has been translated into 10 languages, a podcast, and is being adapted for television. Her writing has appeared in Newsweek, where she began her career, Time, where she was a columnist, as well as Vogue, Cosmopolitan, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. Jessica has spoken about sexism and gender bias at a variety of institutions, including the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Harvard Business School, Facebook, Google, Thomson Reuters, and many, many others. And yes, she is in a real-life feminist fight club. You can keep in touch with Jessica by signing up for her newsletter, The Gender Letter, at nytimes.com forward slash gender letter. If that's too hard to type or to remember, you can simply go on Google and Google Gender Letter, and the appropriate sign-up box will come up as the first-ranked search result. In the interview, we talk about a wide array of topics. We begin with Jessica's decision to write a major New York Times piece on failure on university campuses. We talk about why minorities disproportionately suffer from the imposter syndrome and what to do about it. She tells the story of how she quickly bounced back after being laid off from Tumblr, how she ended up as the first gender editor of the New York Times, her writing process, her failures in writing, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And before I turn things over to Jessica, as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please just take a moment to rank and review the podcast on iTunes or Google Play and subscribe to it on whatever platform that you're listening on. That goes a really long way in spreading the word about the podcast. In addition, if you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Weekly Contrarian, by going to my website, which is ozanvarol.com. That's O-Z-A-N, B as in Victor, A-R-O-L.com. And if you're not driving, you can also text my first name, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Drop in your email address and get the Weekly Contrarian every Thursday morning. It will share with you articles that I may have written, articles that I may have read and enjoyed, a book recommendation, a video, a podcast episode, all intended to challenge conventional wisdom and help change the way that you look at the world. And if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll also get my ebook, The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking for Free. Without further ado, I give you Jessica Bennett. Thank you as always for listening. I've been really looking forward to this conversation since I read a story by you that you wrote for the New York Times last year titled On Campus Failure is on the Syllabus. Would you be able to give us some context to the story and explain what prompted you to write it? Yeah. So I heard about a course at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, called Failing Well. And so in this case, failure was literally on the syllabus of freshmen. And the idea behind it was that 
there are all of these students who come into a place like Smith College, one of these really elite schools, very hard to get into. They are intense high achievers. You know, they really had to excel all through high school, involved in a million extracurricular activities. There's also a really high percentage of first-generation college students at Smith. And so these students not only have to achieve in just the same way, but many of them feel this kind of added pressure to succeed once they're there because they're the first in their families to attend college. And so a researcher at the university, a woman named Rachel Simmons, who I've read her work and been following it for a number of years, she often writes about girls and self-esteem she decided to launch this course called Failing Well. And the idea was to teach students that A, failure happens, B, your life is not going to be over when it does, and to try to essentially normalize this idea, something that seems very simple like failure, but that many of these students have never actually done. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I do think the last one you made there is a really important one feel like during high school and before growing up, kids these days <laughs> aren't really exposed to failure all that much. And so there is a void of failure. And then once they get to college, and I'm a law professor, and I see this quite a bit in, in the law school classes I teach too, you know, anything short of an A is an automatic failure. And the students don't really know how to deal with that. Right, exactly. And and I heard from a lot of students at Smith and at other universities as well, who would, you know, they'd get like an A minus on a paper, and they would think their life was over. It was the worst failure ever, they couldn't go on. So to some extent, I think it's teaching students that that's okay. And that in fact, to succeed or to be resilient, like that's kind of a buzzword that we hear a lot now, you actually do need to fail, you do need to screw up, and you need to learn how to pick yourself back up and move on. And in many cases, these are students who haven't learned that yet. Right. Now, Silicon Valley seems to have taken this idea to an extreme, right? So this idea of fail fast, fail often, celebrating failure is all the rage these days in Silicon Valley. There are conferences like FailCon dedicated to celebrating failure. There are startup funerals with DJs and bagpipes. Oh my God, there are. I didn't oh yes, they are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the pendulum has sort of swung in the, the opposite direction, at least in Silicon Valley. And I don't know if you've given any thought to this, but is there a danger to fetishizing failure or over-celebrating failure? God, well, I mean, if you want to ruin anything, you just let Silicon Valley deal with it. Um, <laughs> but no, I think that, you know, to some extent, these things probably started out with good intentions, like this idea that it's okay to fail, that if you are a person in an industry where you have to take risks, you probably are going to fail once or twice in order to succeed, ultimately. And if you're coming up with ideas for new products or startups, not every idea is going to be a good one. And so you kind of have to learn how to take risks and fail. But yes, do, can you take it too far? Are we fetishizing failure too much? Well, I think certainly like the irony to all of this is that Silicon Valley is still a very white male dominated industry. And I think it's often easier for white men to fail and be able to pick themselves back up again, be able to pitch their next startup, be able to get funding for the next startup, then it would be for say, a woman of color. Right. And you talk about this in your book as well, where you explain the how the data shows that the imposter syndrome affects minority groups disproportionately. So women, racial minorities, the LGBT population. Can you talk a little bit more 
about that and perhaps share with us a moment when you yourself experienced the imposter syndrome and how you dealt with it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting thinking about all of this in the context of failure, because, yeah, you do need to screw up oftentimes in order to get to a good place where you are improving ideas or improving your work. So to some extent, teaching failure is a really good thing. But by the same token, when women or racial minorities do enter the workforce, if they do fail, those failures, research has found, are often remembered longer and scrutinized more harshly. So how this relates back to imposter syndrome is if you're constantly worried that you're going to be judged more harshly, I think it takes a toll internally because you know that you're being held up to what is not really an equal standard. So in my own life, let's see, how has this played out? The research shows is that basically if you're one of the only people in a room, and I don't mean a literal room, but like a workplace or any environment, and it could be academia, it could be an office, you're more likely to feel that pressure. You're more likely to feel like people are watching your every move, like people are going to notice if you screw something up. And so that trickles down and people often feel like they don't belong there or they don't deserve to be there. So I've certainly felt that in my own life in various situations when I was a young reporter at Newsweek magazine where I began my career and I was often one of the youngest and only women in the room. It would sort of play out with me not feeling very confident in my ideas or not wanting to speak up in a meeting and being much more shy than I would have otherwise. But I think it plays out in, in so many different forms. And what we know can solve this in some ways, there's like self-help you can do, of course, but also you can just simply make workplaces more diverse so that people no longer feel like the only or the token. One of the things that I, I found really interesting in your book, you mentioned that in the past, this is relevant to the point you just made, in the past, sexism was more direct and easy to identify. But in the book, you say today's sexism is insidious, casual, politically correct, even friendly. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, this is really relevant to my own experience, because when I began my career at Newsweek, as I mentioned, this was a place where, you know, I was told that I had the same job and could write just as frequently as my male colleagues. And I'd grown up believing that and thinking that and being told that I could accomplish everything, the same things that my brothers could. Then when I was there, there were sort of these subtle, insidious things that kept happening. I would pitch an idea, it would be rejected, then it would appear on the pages of the magazine a few weeks later under a man's byline. I would constantly be interrupted when I was speaking in meetings or elsewhere. I think a lot of women I know have this sort of joke about, we'll say something and then a man will repeat the same thing and you'll be like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> so that sort of thing happening. But it's all these kind of, you know, people might call them microaggressions where you're like, am I just nuts? Like, is this really happening? Is this just me? Or is this like actually a thing? And for me, it was actually learning that in the very workplace that I was in at that time at Newsweek, women 40 years prior had sued the magazine for gender discrimination in the year 1970. And in their case, they were told women are not allowed to write at Newsweek. You can only be a male girl or a researcher. But at the end of the day, you're going to turn over your notes to a man who will get the byline that actually sort of 
contextualized what was happening for me. Because in their era, you know, the sexism was very overt. It was somebody in HR actually telling you that you were not allowed to be a writer because you were a woman. And that was illegal, so illegal that you could file a lawsuit over it. Whereas in mine, it was kind of telling women that we could, of course, accomplish the same things. And yet there were all of these subtleties lying underneath the surface that kind of made us doubt our confidence and prevented us from doing so. There's a really interesting parallel. As I was reading your book, one of the things I research in my day job as a law professor is democratic regimes and anti-democratic regimes as well. And, and back in the day, in the 1940s and 50s, authoritarianism used to be more direct, you know, in the same way that sexism was more direct, authoritarianism was also direct. And over time, over the decades, it became more subtle. So authoritarian leaders learned to game the system so that authoritarianism now is not as easy to identify because many of these regimes hide their authoritarian nature under a democratic facade. And so that seems to be very similar to the evolution of sexism as well, going from more direct, as you described, the, the experience in 1970 with Newsweek, to the type of sexism that women might now experience in the workplace, which is more insidious and casual and politically correct. Right, exactly. There's sort of a lot of names for it, the casualness of it, the everyday sexism, the politically correct sexism, the like hipster guy sexism. And then interestingly, of course, we're in this political moment where I think actually, to some extent, it's getting more overt once again. Yeah, the pendulum is swinging in the other direction. So one of the things, one of the other things that, it, that struck me about your book is that you use humor to draw attention to a very serious prevalent problem. A reader might look at that and think that a serious issue merits a sort of a non-humorous, somber, serious tone. Actually, I think personally that your cho choice of humor is spot on, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you made that choice. Yeah, to some extent, like, <laughs> if you don't laugh about this stuff, you'll just cry. So the inspiration for this book came from a couple of things. One, I felt like I cover this issue as a profession. I talk about this stuff all the time. I'm constantly reading on it. And we often hear so much about problems and not a lot about solutions. So I felt frustrated that there wasn't really a manual out there or something that I wish I had had when I was beginning my career that could actually provide me with everyday tools to combat some of this stuff. And I knew from various work and from reading a lot, a lot, a lot of academic studies <laughs> that there, in fact, was research-backed tools and actions that could be taken to combat some of this stuff. So what I wanted to do was put that together in a really digestible way for a mainstream audience. So doing that, taking academic work and making it digestible and maybe even making it fun, I think required a little bit of humor. You know, I wanted this to be something that people would actually want to read, not just feel like they had to read. And then the other influence was my real life feminist fight club. Um, the book is named after this group of women that I've been meeting with since I began my career about a decade ago in New York. It's a group of creatives in various industries, television, film, PR, journalism, creative ones. And we've been gathering, you know, monthly, every couple of months since we started about a decade ago, talking about our careers, talking about struggles, talking about things, challenges that we had each faced and how we could help each other overcome them. And 
This is a group of hilarious women. Some of them work professionally in comedy. Others of them don't. But they have made me laugh through all of the insane shit that we have often gone through in our own professional lives. And it's what kept it fun. And I think it in some ways is what made us want to keep fighting and keep meeting. So to me, humor is important towards just wanting to keep talking about an issue. But I also think that there's a way of using humor to open up really complicated subjects that people might be uncomfortable talking about. You know, when I was on my book tour, I was going around speaking to all sorts of different audiences. And it's like the subtitle of the book is a survival manual for your sexist workplace. So I'm basically calling your workplace sexist. <laughs> like that's the, the baseline. And I really do believe that every workplace is like that's not an attack. That's just the reality if you look at the numbers. But some people might take offense to that. And so I'm trying to loosen it up a little bit with a bit of humor. The subtitle is then followed by an asterisk that says this book is 21% more expensive for men. It's not actually more expensive for men. Um, That would be illegal. And the number now, if it were to come out today, should be corrected to 20%. But anyhow, the point is getting a laugh out of people, I think, before they even open the book has allowed me to have a lot more conversations around the subject matter than I may have been able to otherwise. Absolutely. And as a reader, I thought that it worked really well as well. So I want to transition to your current role as gender editor and really the first gender editor for the New York Times. I'm curious, what prompted the Times to create the gender editor position? And I ask that for two reasons. One, it might be my own ignorance, but I don't know of any other major publication that actually has a gender editor position. And second, gender strikes me as a cross-functional issue, right? So everything that the Times writes about from culture to economics to politics can be viewed through a, a gender lens. So I'd love to hear more about the position. So this was a position that had been in the works for actually a couple of years. And it just so happened that by the time I actually went through the interview process and took a couple of weeks off um, before I started the job and then started the job, my first day was two weeks after the Harvey Weinstein story broke and the Me Too movement was launched. So from the outside, it sort of looked like we had perfectly planned this thing. (laughs) But in fact, this had been something that we were talking about for a long time. And I think the reason was, you know, the Times has been very transparent about and recognizes that I think it and most mainstream media was created by and for white men. And that has changed. That's not the reality of our audience or those who make up our journalists. But there are remnants of that that seep into coverage and seep into the makeup of any newsroom. And so this initiative, it's called the Gender Initiative Internally, and and I'm the gender editor. The idea is to sort of exactly as you said it, make sure that we are covering every subject through a lens of gender. You know, like my job is not simply to write stories about women or about feminism or about LGBT issues, but it's to make sure that there's a lens that we are seeing and viewing all of our coverage through that incorporates gender. And so sometimes that means covering the news of the day, whether it's sexual harassment or pay equity or something else. 
And other times it means actually thinking about new delivery mechanisms for how we bring the news to our readers. You know, we know that young women are much more likely to consume on social media and they're much more likely to find the New York Times through social media. So how do we better reach them if they're not coming to the homepage? So to some extent, it's thinking about audience. It's thinking about the coverage. It's thinking about things like sources and bylines and photography, like to what extent does our photography reflect the reality of a changing world? And so in that sense, it's very cross-functional. I do a little bit of everything. And it's been interesting to see there are a number of similar positions cropping up at other outlets. The Washington Post just hired a gender correspondent, El País, also has instituted a gender editor. And so it's been really encouraging and interesting to see this type of position at a number of mainstream publications. If this article I found online is correct, you were one of 300 applicants for the gender editor position and went through 11 interview rounds in one day. Is that right? Yeah, the Times really knows how to put you through it when you're interviewing. (laughs) Can you walk us through that experience and maybe talk about how you survived? Yeah, happy to. So it almost requires going way back because I've been writing for the Times for a while now, largely about gender and culture and a lot for the style section, some for the business section. And so a couple of years back, I did a profile of Monica Lewinsky and it was the first major piece about her in a number of years. And she was essentially, you know, sort of trying to come back and reclaim her narrative. She, of course, was known primarily for the affair with Bill Clinton and could never really escape that, hadn't really had a career since then. Her name had become famous in a way that she couldn't even control. She was in something like, when I was actually profiling her, there were like six rap songs out at the present moment that mentioned her (laughs) and not in a good way. So I did this piece about her and sort of about how the culture had changed and how the media treated her at the time and how the narrative around the president having an affair with an intern really wasn't as advanced or nuanced as I think we would have that conversation today. And so after it came out, it it did really well. It got a a lot of praise. And so I heard through um, my feminist spy network that Dean Baquet, who is the executive editor of the New York Times, had praised it at a morning meeting. And I was freelancing at the time, so I was not inside the office. And so I asked for a meeting with he and his then deputy, Susan Chira. And I basically pitched the idea of covering gender full-time and presented some evidence about why I thought that would be valuable. And then in the typical job hunt (laughs) fashion, I wrote a very long memo that I submitted and months and months went by. And I don't think I heard back from them and I moved on with my life and I wrote the book and the book came out. And then many months later, there was actually a job posting (laughs) for the gender editor. And at the time, I wasn't even sure if I still wanted it. But eventually I did apply and came in for this very intense day of many, many interviews. It was sort of like speed dating. And here we are. (laughs) Long story short, here we are. So it was 11 different interviews in a single day? 
I honestly don't even remember. It was like, I didn't know I was repeating myself by then, but like, I couldn't remember what I had said to which people. It was many, many interviews in an insane maze of a day. And the final interview was with my now boss, Jody Redoran, who's the head of audience here. So I want to talk about your personal failures a little bit. Looking back on your life, can you think of a failure that stands out as particularly valuable for you? And you can define that in however way you want. And what makes it valuable? I think my failure story, it involves what I did after I left Newsweek magazine. So I began my career in journalism at a time when like everything was imploding. Like getting a job in journalism was very hard. I ended up in a magazine. I was so lucky to be there. And then a few years in, we got put up for sale by the Washington Post company, which owned Newsweek at the time, for $1. <laughs> That's how valuable we were. And then a man named Sidney Harmon of like the Harmon Speakers Empire, um, and his wife was Jane Harmon, they purchased the magazine for $1 plus all of the debt. And so we went through this you know, huge turmoil, there were tons of layoffs, everything was shifting, and then Sidney Harmon died. And so he was 90. And so once again, the magazine was up for sale. And then it was purchased by the IAC company, which owns the Daily Beast. And so we merged the Daily Beast. Anyway, this whole thing, it was like years of not knowing if you're going to have a job the next day and seeing your colleagues one by one have to leave and move out of their desks. And, you know, it's like your typical media traumatic situation. And so at a certain point, I was like, I got to get out of old media. Like, this is too much. I can't go through this anymore. And I started interviewing for a job at Tumblr. So new media, they had all this money. They had like snacks that were amazing. And you could bring your dog to work, like all of those sort of perks of, of Silicon Valley companies that you hear about, but it was in New York. And so I pitched them on this idea of doing journalistic content for Tumblr as a brand. And they hired me and they hired myself and a co-editor. And it was like this big fancy thing. And there was an announcement. There was an article written in the New York Times about our appointment, blah, 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 blah. Long story short, 11 months later, <laughs> they decided they didn't really want to do journalism. And so they fired us all. And I was in LA at the time working on a story and like they didn't even wait till I got back. I just was on a speaker phone call with HR. So suddenly I like I thought that I was going to escape the turmoil of, of media <laughs> and yet I had walked into this different type of turmoil. And so suddenly I was without a job. So what do you do when 11 months after you start this new fancy job, you get laid off? Well, I kind of had nothing to lose at that point. And I had met Sheryl Sandberg a couple of months prior. I had been seated next to her publicist at a dinner about the launch of her book, which I had read. And I had written this article about wage gap negotiation programs on college campuses for which I interviewed her. And so in that moment, when I got back to the Tumblr office and had to clean up my desk, I was like, you know what? fuck it. I'm going to call Cheryl Sandberg and be like, hey, you should hire me to help you with editorial content. <laughs> so I did. And she ended up flying me out and we worked on this whole pitch. And ultimately, she hired me as a contributor to help her with creative projects and journalistic projects. But it was one of those things where like, I would never have had the guts to do that. 
an email or call someone out of the blue had I not been in this position where I had just been laid off and like really felt like I had nothing to lose. I'd love to dig a little deeper into the gap between when you were fired from Tumblr and when you made the decision to reach out to Sheryl Sandberg. And, And the reason I ask is, you know, if I'm fired from a job, my initial instinct would be to sit in front of my TV with a bucket of ice cream and watch reruns of How I Met Your Mother. (laughs) Um, So how did you find the motivation to then say, having been fired from Tumblr, that you're going to essentially reach for a moonshot and email Sheryl Sandberg and ask for a job? You know, was there any self-talk or any strategies that you used to bounce back from that? I think I was pretty angry. (laughs) You know, my therapist always tells me that anger is a really motivating emotion. (laughs) So I'm sure she would say that that's in part what motivated me. I think that I sort of wanted to show them in some way. And I specifically remember like sitting at my little sad cubicle inside the Tumblr office um, next to my colleague. And we were both packing up our desks, like trying to figure out if we could keep our computers. And I had already fired off this email and phone call. And then I got a phone call back from Cheryl. And so I answered the phone like at my desk and it was her and I was still in the Tumblr office. And I just remember like wanting to throw up my middle fingers in the, like guns ablaze. <laughs> Wait, so, uh, so j- 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 I don't want to interrupt you, but this was the same day. So th- the day that you got fired was the same day that you reached out to Cheryl Sandberg? I'm trying to remember. It was not the same day that I got fired because I was in LA okay. for the actual firing. And then I was on a plane back and I remember I upgraded my seat on my corporate card because I was pissed off. And then I think it was the next day that I was actually back in the office to clean out my desk. And so I emailed and and left a voicemail and she called back immediately, which is very much her. She's very on top of things. So this is a question I ask to all of the authors who appear on the show. How do you fail when it comes to the writing process? Oh, my God. Well, pretty much every piece I ever write, there's some point in the writing process where I think I'm a complete failure and like want to give up and have a meltdown. There have been like a couple of funny memes going around the internet about the writing process where it's like in various stages, it's like, I'm a genius. I'm so smart. Oh my God, I'm horrible. Oh my God, they should fire me. I'm the worst person ever. Like, I don't know why anyone pays me to write. Like, I should just quit right now. And then like you come back around, there's sort of a cycle to it. So, you know, being a journalist, like good editors are everything and they help pull you out of those holes, I think. And I think writers in general, like we all hate ourselves and um, we have no self-confidence and and we think we're the worst. Um, So having a good editor to be like, no, you don't suck. Like you just need to change X, Y, and Z things is critical. But I think that for any creative, there really is like a cycle of the creative process at one point of which you will think that you're a complete failure and it's the worst idea ever. And then you will sort of power through it and you will get to a place that you feel okay with. How, if at all, was your approach to writing the book any different than writing a column for The Times? Well, my book is so kind of bite-sized in that there are illustrations, there are short chapters, there are lots of pullouts. So it didn't really need to be written from start to finish. And so that was the major difference. I jumped all around. I had like 45 different Google documents for different little sections. And then I kind of put them all together at the end. And when I'm writing, when I'm sitting down to write an article, I'm typically kind of going from start to finish. I'm at least doing it in a certain way that has sort of an arc to it. Whereas the book was almost like, 
if it was physical form, it would have been, you know, papers all over my floor of different sections and then me kind of compiling them at the end. It's funny you mentioned that. I'm, I'm currently in the process of writing a book and I'm using the exact same strategy. It's too intimidating for me to start at the beginning. So I'll start in the, in the middle of the book. But even with that, like chapter seven title and just looking at zero of, I don't know, 10,000 words is way too intimidating. So I'll, I'll open okay. up like 20 different Google documents and write bits and pieces. Yeah, much more uh, sane than, than trying to just do it all at once. So we're coming to the end of our time here, but I want to give you the opportunity to the extent you have any parting words on failure. It could be words, it could be advice, it could be another story about one of your personal failures that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap things up. I think there's a couple of things. So when I was writing the chapter in the book that dealt with failure, I talked a lot with Adam Grant who's written a number of books, and he is a psychologist who studies organizational business as well. And he had written about how there are a couple different types of failures, those centered on action and those centered on inaction. So basically like screwing up the thing that you tried or screwing up by not trying at all. And it was interesting to hear him say that more people actually regret not having tried than those who tried and failed. So like the people who years later were still thinking about this thing or those who like never took the risk and risked the failure rather than those who screwed it up and and moved on with their lives. And so I thought about that a lot in the sense that I ask myself when I'm thinking about taking a risk or wavering on something like, well, I regret not having tried this. And I think that's been a really useful tool for me. And it's also been useful to read about other people, very successful people or people that you consider very successful, their stories of failure. Like, I don't think we talk about failure enough. And I think women in particular don't often talk about failure. So like to read, and I started compiling these in a big Google document as I was working on the book, but like to read that executives called the first pilot episode of Seinfeld week (laughs) saying that no audience would ever want to watch the show was sort of motivating to me or to hear. And I had never heard this before that Oprah was in fact fired from her first job as a reporter or that Harry Potter was in fact rejected on the first round (laughs) because publishers thought it was too long for a children's book. So, you know, there are like all of these stories about successful people who failed on their first try and then went on to be very successful. And now we all know their names and their their famous yada yada yada. But we all fail at some point. And so I think talking about it just as those college students were doing, to some extent makes it okay to try and to know that it might not work. That's the perfect note to wrap up this conversation. I'll just mention two things in response to what you just said. One, I've actually had Adam on the show and he did not mention that line. So I'm so glad that you did the line about, you know, we regret not having tried more so than uh, regretting having tried. And then second of all, what you said really resonates with the reason why I started this podcast is, you know, we tend to put really successful people on a pedestal. But if you dig deeper, all of us are walking imperfections. We're all paddling furiously under the surface. And so I wanted to expose that a little bit. So thank you so much, Jessica, for being a part of it and for sharing your, your failures with us and your advice as well. Where can people find out more about you online and sign up for your newsletter? You can go to my website, which is jessicabennett.com. 
it has links to everything. And the new newsletter that we just launched here at the Times is called Gender Letter. You can Google it and sign up. Excellent. And I encourage everyone to check out Jessica's book as well, which I really enjoyed reading. That's Feminist Fight Club, a survival manual for a sexist workplace available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.